All right. Wonderful singing in a space where we can hear each other, right? Love being outdoors, but, you know, you have infinite space almost for voices that just dissipate. So good to hear you all singing through masks even. I heard you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. It will be great for you to have your Bible with you because we're going to be going all throughout these three chapters together this morning, the afternoon. Well, in the classic work, The Odyssey by Homer, we read of Odysseus and his encounter with the sirens, these female voices singing to him and his crew as they sail past their land. Here's how Odysseus is warned in the words of a goddess named Circe. Now pay attention, she says, to what I'm about to tell you. First you will come to the sirens, who enchant all who come near them. If anyone unwarily draws in too close and hears the singing of the sirens, his wife and children will never welcome him home again. For they sit in a green field and warble him to death with the sweetness of their song. There's a great heap of dead men's bones lying all around. Therefore, pass these sirens by and stop your men's ears with wax that none of them may hear. It's a matter of life or death for Odysseus. He must be ready to ward off the seduction of the sirens. And church, this afternoon, as we continue in our study in Proverbs We, too, are going to hear warnings this afternoon in this text. We must heed them and be ready against these sweet enticements of the path of foolishness. So this afternoon, we find ourselves about midway through the first section of Proverbs, these first nine chapters, which contain a set of teachings from a father to his son, teachings that seek to persuade his son to choose the path of wisdom rather than the path of folly. And this afternoon, we are looking at three distinct lessons regarding sexual temptation and sin. Uh, sexual sin defined as all sexual activity outside the covenant of a marriage between a man and a woman. Now, these teachings are from a father to his son. So naturally, the temptress is a woman. But lest we kind of start off on the wrong foot here, that doesn't mean this section of Scripture is applicable only to men this afternoon. Neither neither does it mean that men are somehow less guilty of often being the seducer. No, instead, we recognize that the context is that of a a lecture to a young man. And so as we hear the Father's words, we should also be applying his wisdom to each of our own personal contexts, who we find ourselves often attracted to, when and where we particularly experience sexual temptation. Because whether we're men or women, married or not, we're going to face something along these lines. We're going to face this kind of temptation. And the question is then that when we do face it, what will be the path of wisdom then? And that's what the father is 
eager to show his son here. And that's what I think the Lord is eager to show each and every one of us here this morning. So there are three lessons we see in these chapters. If you look, just scan this text real quick. You see chapter five, that's the first lesson. Uh, We're going to skip over the first 19 verses of chapter six, and I'm sure come back to them uh, at times during the rest of our series in Proverbs. And then that's, and then the, the second half of chapter six, verses 20 to 35, is the second lesson. And then finally, the third lesson in this topic is all of chapter seven. And so we're going to just take a quick flyover, not read all of these texts, but hopefully most of them uh, as we look at these teachings this afternoon. And as we do so, let's think about three questions. Three questions. First, why is sexual sin attractive? Why is sexual sin attractive? Second, why is sexual sin unwise? And that's the point of Proverbs, right? Why is sexual sin unwise? And then third, how can we fight the temptation then to sexual sin? How can we fight the temptation to sexual sin? So first, why is sexual sin attractive? Well, the first answer we see in this text is that sexual sin speaks smoothly. So look at, with me at chapter 5, verse 3. We're going to be hopping all over the place, so keep your Bible open. Chapter 5, verse 3. We read of this forbidden woman, this woman who attempts the son to leave the way of wisdom and follow her instead. The father says of this woman that her lips drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. Look at chapter 6, verse 24. We see she has a smooth tongue. Chapter 7, verse 5. She speaks with smooth words. This is one of the primary reasons we see in this text of why sexual sin is so attractive. It sounds lovely. And we see an example of these very words in chapter 7, verses 14 through 20. So look with me there. Chapter 7, verses 14 through 20. So these verses are found in the midst of a story that this father is telling his son about a foolish youth he's observed outside his window. This young man is approached and he's propositioned by a seductress. And we get seven verses of how this sweet talk sounds. She says, starting in verse 14, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to see you eagerly, and I've found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. These words are attractive. They're they're sweet. They promise pleasure with no consequences. They promise this illicit rendezvous with no strings attached. No one's going to get hurt. These are two mutually consenting parties. No one else is involved. And as for the one guy that would be kind of a little ticked off that this was happening. I mean, he's gone. What he won't know won't hurt him. Church, notice these words are not only aimed at pleasure. These words are flattering and 
they just make this young man feel so good about himself, don't they? They make this naive young man feel wanted and desirable in a way that perhaps he doesn't feel in other areas of his life. Friends, sexual temptation strokes the ego. It makes you feel like a god, like a deity that's worthy of being worshipped and adored. And so it makes sense then that this kind of temptation is intoxicating. How it kind of puts you in a stupor so that all of a sudden you follow. Without any further thought or question, you see that happens right afterwards in chapter 7 verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. All of a sudden, he follows her. See, the sales pitch of sexual sin is deceptive, but it doesn't tell the whole story. But when we follow it, we're all in. Here, here the siren song of sexual temptation is at fever pitch, and it works. See, sexual sin and temptation take something good in us that God has designed, and it twists it to make it all about our own fulfillment. See, God made our bodies. He made our minds. He made our sexuality. Sex is a wonderful, good thing God has designed for our joy. There's no one more in favor of sex than God. And so when sexual temptation comes calling, it causes something that's actually God-given and good within us at its, at, in its design. But it twists it. And it cries out and it says, you can have the gift without any thought to the giver. You can do this without God. You can do this for yourself. It's intoxicating. Just like the first sin in the garden, where Adam and Eve took of the fruit. Why? Because they wanted to be God. Because they wanted their ego stroked. Sexual sin promises us the good life. It, it plays and riffs on God's good design and then just sort of bends it in on the self. And its call can be almost impossible to deny because it puts us in an intoxicated stupor for which these words of wisdom from this father who remembers speaking the very wisdom of God himself are meant to be sort of smelling salts, waking us up to the real destination of sexual sin a path leading to death. And that leads us to our second question this afternoon. Why is sexual sin unwise? So remember, the whole point of Proverbs is to make us wise. Biblical wisdom, as we've defined it, is a right view of God and his world and living life in light of it. A right view of God and his world and living life in light of it. And so it follows right on from that definition then that if sexual sin is, di- is a distortion of God's good design of his world, then it's not living life with a right view of God, right? And so by definition, at least by our definition, it's patently unwise. The primary reason sexual sin is wrong is because it rejects all God designed it for. We read in Scripture 
how God's purpose for sex is to signify a covenant of love between a man and a woman. Sex is not something you try out to see if you should get more involved and commit to one another. It's not a tool to see if you are compatible. Sex doesn't precede commitment. It's born out of commitment. It's a sign of a covenant already in place, a covenant agreement to love one another and hold fast to one another, denying all suitors. Tim Keller puts this well when he writes this. He says, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. According to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. So, friends, when when Christians say one shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, it's not because we're prudes, at least most of us. It's not because we think sex is bad or dirty, at least most of us. This is how Scripture teaches it. It's actually because we want more pleasure. Right? The reason we think extramarital sex is wrong is because we actually want the best pleasure in the world. And that pleasure is found in the designer's design of the world. We know his way is best. We know his way is the most fulfilling way. The world might try to take his way and and twist it and still promise results, still promise happiness, but it's not going to work. It never has. God's creation is meant to run on God's design. And when it does, it produces incredible pleasure and joy, both here and forever. And so sexual sin is unwise because it takes God's design, twists it, corrupts it, and still somehow expects good results from it. And that's the height of foolishness, according to Proverbs. And so with that reason as kind of our base foundation, I think we can then go to this text and see other reasons start branching out from that foundation about why sexual sin is unwise. So look at chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. So here's how we see sexual sin brings regret and squanders labor. So here's what the father says. He says, And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. I wonder, have you ever experienced the despair of being addicted to sexual sin? It never lets up, does it? It wastes your time, your energy, your money. It exhausts you. It betrays your trust. And sleep, productivity, 
are often sacrificed on the altar of self-gratification. Sexual sin is a foolproof way to waste your life. And friends, sexual sin is not something you can just jump in, uh, jump in and out of whenever you're in the mood. Sexual sin pierces its talons into you and it doesn't let go. The more you get, the more you need. And in the end, it begins to act like salt water. So the more you drink it, the thirstier you get. Neil Williams has written about false gods or idols in the Christian life, of which sexual sin is one of the worst. And this is what he says just about idols in general, but you, you apply it to what our topic this morning. He says, the difference between trusting idols and trusting Jesus is like the difference between drinking salt water and drinking fresh water, or drinking seawater. Yeah, same thing. Two things happen when you drink seawater. You get thirstier, and you start to go crazy idolatry, and we would say sexual sin as well, is like drinking seawater. Your view of reality becomes warped. Something that seems so wrong in the past is now acceptable. Worse still, it only leaves you wanting. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. A false god is just that, false. It can only lie. It promises life, but instead it brings death. Only the living Lord can bless and fill us with life. Only Jesus is living water, fresh water that quenches our thirst. Friends, sexual sin, indeed sin in all of its forms, is irrational. It promises what it can never deliver, and it makes you go crazy. And this should make sense, right? Because if sexual sin is not in keeping with God's design, we would expect it to just start breaking down every area of our life. And that's what it does. It brings regret. It squanders our energy and our efforts. In chapter 6, we see it can pique the angry revenge of the cheated spouse. Do you see that there in first, uh, chapter 6, starting in verse 25? Do not desire her beauty in your heart, the father says, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Verse 33. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. In church, if sexual sin rejects God's design and brings destruction to our lives here and now, then the final reason I want to see in this text as to why it's unwise should come as no surprise. Sexual sin is unwise because it leads to death. So it takes us off the path of God's wisdom, and anything that wanders from that path is a deathly path. Because any destination outside God who is the life of life itself is a destination of death. Chapter 5, verse 5. Her feet go down to death. 
Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of her life. Her ways wander and she doesn't know it. Chapter 7, verse 25. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Chapter 6, verse 32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. I wonder if all of this is why you came to church this afternoon. To hear this sort of stark, deathly language about a sin we often don't want to talk about. Friends, this isn't my language. This is God's language. And through the Father here in Proverbs, the Lord is kindly warning each one of you and me to see that the end of sexual sin is a destination of death. Yeah, it might promise some good times, and it might even deliver on them sometimes. But it conveniently neglects to mention that those good times will give way to eternal despair. If you're here and you're a Christian, and you're expecting to grow in grace, you're telling yourself that you're maturing in Christ, or you want to, and yet this afternoon you find yourself knee-deep, engrossed in sexual sin, heed this warning. That path ends in death. As we saw earlier in Proverbs, the one who gives himself up to her won't be coming back. So I don't know about you, but I feel sort of a tension between these first two points. We have something that's so attractive and so unwise. And so what this leaves us with is that if we don't think ahead and strategize and plan about this, we're going to pick the attractive every time and not the wise. So sexual sin is so enticing, and yet we know it ends in death. Then the final question this morning, I think, is... is The next one we should be asking, how in the world do we fight the temptation to indulge in this? Four things, and then we'll be done and go to the Lord's table. I think the first thing we see in this text is something we've repeated often throughout our small study in this book so far. And that is to hear God's wisdom. To hear God's wisdom. Uh, This is repeated often even in our text this afternoon. So look at chapter 5, verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Verse 7. And now, O sons, listen to me. Chapter 6 and verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment. And forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. This is God's wise truth that we're talking about here. Verse 23. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Chapter 7 and verse 2. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. You ever wonder what that means? I, I've never thought about what that means, even though I've thought of, I've asked why that means many times. 
So the apple of the eye is, for all intents and purposes, the pupil of it. It's the middle of it. And I don't know about you, but I like my eyes. And I don't like when people get too close to them, even the, the ophthalmologist, right? I like my pupils. I like to see. We all have this intuitive instinct to guard our eye apples. We don't trust just anyone to get too close. And so what the Proverbs are saying here is that we ought to guard the truth of God's wisdom in our hearts just like we would guard a sharp object getting near the middle of our eyes. We must hold fast what wisdom, what God says because it leads to life. We've got to hear God's wisdom. Second way to fight sex, temptation to sexual sin is to just keep a good distance from it. Well, we're all talking about distancing nowadays. We all, we all are trying to implement it, right? Keep a good distance from sexual sin while you're at it. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. The father says, keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. It, this gets very practical, right? Because dads in the room with teenagers have all said this about something, right? Like, stay away from there. Don't go there. When you drive there, stay away from that area of the town. We're all looking for ways to guard our kids, especially as they start going on their own. So this dad is saying, keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Friends, are you putting yourself in a position where you will most likely be tempted? Because you know your heart. It's going to jump at it. Right? James, in the New Testament, uses the idea of a fishing lure. And even though we might know better, we know there's a hook there, it's just going to overwhelm us. It's going to intoxicate us. And so, friend, if you are relying on your own willpower and self-control, the lures on the end of that fishing line will snag you. Keep away. Uh, maybe some of you have heard of a, a pastor in Dallas named Matt Chandler. Uh, he tells a story of a TV show he was watching where uh, a person was getting pictures with a lion for a commercial. And I'll spare you the details, but it ended badly for the person. And, and as Matt was, was watching this TV show, he, he recalls hearing the lion trainer just in shock that this would happen. Because he knew that lion since it was a cub. He had, mil- he had like fed it milk. This was not the lion he knew. How could this lion turn on someone like that? And Matt's response is, because it's a lion. Here's how he responds. He says, I have to believe that many of us are playing with sin like this trainer was playing with a lion. Oh, I've got control of this. This is never going to turn on me. I've trained this to sit when I tell it to sit, to get in its bed when it's time to go to bed. And then he says, I would urge you not to play with lions because in season, at the right time, they will turn and they will devour Friend, don't play with sexual sin. Don't nurse it and think you can control it as it grows. It'll end up leading you where you don't want to go. Don't play with porn. 
Don't text that man from work late at night asking a favor. Don't go to get lunch with that woman from the office because she looks lonely. There are, right, I'm making broad generalizations here. We can talk about wisdom in in certain things, but I'm making broad category statements here just to convince and to persuade you to not touch temptation with a 10-foot pole. You can still be nice, but you know where you're in danger. Don't lie to yourself. Go another way. Take another street. Don't play with lions, no matter how tame they look. This is where the local church is so important. So as you join a local church in covenant with brothers and sisters around you, you surround yourself with people who will know you and who can warn you and help you. Third way to fight temptation to sexual sin is to love your spouse. You see that there in chapter 5, verse 15? The father says, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That word even has a word of kind of being led astray by her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Married Christian, pursue your spouse. Give yourself to him or to her in the covenant of your love and fidelity. Sex in a Christian marriage is not designed by God to be perfunctory, but precious. Don't hold out on each other. If there are issues of abuse or coercion, by all means, seek help. But don't let things like self-centeredness or laziness or distance cause you to miss out on God's good design for sex in your marriage. And finally, what about those who aren't married in our church? So what about those who are single or widows or widowers? What about those who are same-sex attracted and have decided to remain celibate for that reason? Church family, sex is not an end in itself. It's a gift. It's meant to bring glory to the giver. See, God has created sex to point us to himself. Sex is a sign of the covenant of marriage and it points us to the covenant of love God has entered into with us by his son. And in that relationship is fully satisfying pleasure, fully engrossing joy. So my unmarried friend, you may not possess the sign of that joy, the sign of that marriage, with Christ here on earth, but you possess all it signifies for eternity. You may not have the shadow for this fleeting few decades on earth, but for eternity future, you're going to have the real thing. You have a spouse who has given himself up for you and will never desert you, never cheat on you, never forsake you, never disappoint you and will bring you into his embrace forever.
And so the fourth reason, a fourth way we can fight sexual temptation is to love Jesus. It's to love God. See, ultimately, in our sin, we are not the Son in this passage. We haven't the ability to turn away from the seductress. Rather, we are like the adulteress in this text, who leaves her God, who forgets the covenant of her youth, who goes after other idols looking for what only her God could provide her. And that rebellion in our hearts is why Jesus came. He came, and do you ever think about this? Do you ever think about how Jesus was sexually tempted in every way to the greatest extent and never sinned? See, throughout these verses, we see sexual sin constantly saying, I'm free. I come at no cost to you. And again and again, we see that that's a lie. Sexual sin costs everything. Sexual sin kills. Its cost may not be an upfront cost, but its end is demanding of your very life, your very life. And yet when Jesus came, he gave up his very life. He came to pay the greatest cost. He came to undergo death itself for you and for me. Jesus was judged for our sexual sin so that if we come to him and find salvation in him, we will be washed clean, forgiven, given new hearts, finding salvation in him, new hearts that desire and by God's spirit now actually can turn from temptation to the Lord. If you're here this afternoon and you're not a Christian, turn to Jesus. No matter what you've done, he can forgive you. And in him alone, you're going to find fully satisfying intimacy and love. Forever. And brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're particularly struggling with this sort of temptation right now, won't you talk to someone about it? But here in this church, we gather on Sunday afternoons now to get excited about the gospel because we know the depths of our sinful hearts. And so if you trust Jesus, if he's your hope, then remember this afternoon, your sin has been placed on him. Your sin no longer has dominion over you. Its chains have been broken, and that means you can come out with it. That means you can be honest about it because its judgment has already been satisfied on the cross. Your identity is no longer determined by your specific brand of sexual sin, but by your Savior. And so for you, the call of Proverbs 5 through 7 this afternoon is to take a step on the path of wisdom and fight sexual sin side by side with brothers and sisters in the faith. Won't you take that step this afternoon? Look up somebody you trust in the church or among your circle of Christian community in, in other areas. Open up and find the grace of God because the destination of that path 
the path of resisting sexual temptation and seeking to honor the Lord is true life forever. Let's pray. Lord, when it comes to a text like this, we recognize how desperately in need of your grace we are. And so as we prepare to come to your table now, we come as sinners saved by the mercy of Jesus Christ. And so we see that our need has been met. That we don't come on our own merits alone, but on his alone. So, Lord, take our sin-weary, lustful, perverted hearts and make them even more like Jesus as we feast on our Savior now. In his name, amen.